Welcome to the Rick Reed Sermon Podcast. Rick serves as the president of Heritage College and Seminary, where he has the joy of preaching God's Word and training the next generation of preachers. The sermons on this podcast are taken from Dr. Reed's preaching ministry in churches, conferences, and at chapel services at Heritage. It's a real joy to be part of this worship service at Fair Havens. Uh, for Linda and me, it's a treat to be back here. I think our first time at Fair Havens was 20 years ago. And so it was, uh, it's been part of our life for the last uh, couple decades. Uh, so, Liz, it's just wonderful to be here with your team and to see the beautiful grounds and have such a warm welcome. And then, as Gord said, uh, we actually came to Canada from California 21 years ago. And he mentioned that we arrived during the famous ice storm of 1998. We flew from California, and uh, I've told this story before, but it's, it's kind of an amazing story for us. We flew from California, and we picked some oranges off my parents' trees to bring to uh, a little housewarming gift. So we got in the plane, had a, had a connection in Chicago. We got to Chicago and found out that the Air Canada flight had been canceled into Ottawa, where we were going. And so we thought, well, now what do we do? I called my mom and I said, looks like there's some bad weather up in Canada. She goes, I think they're pretty used to it. They're going to be fine. <laughs> so we, uh, we looked around and there was one American airline flight still said it was good. So we got our luggage, got on the American airline flight. And we flew into Ottawa and we landed there about one in the morning, two in the morning. And we were the last flight to get in before they closed the airport for a couple of days. And when we landed, it was so ice covered, they couldn't get the plane from the tarmac to the terminal. So we got in and uh, I called John Galling, who's actually here today. And John was going to pick us up, but he had seen that our flight was canceled. So he was home in bed, sleeping away. <laughs> I woke him up at one or two in the morning. and said, John, we're, uh, you don't know me. I don't know you, but we're supposed to be here. And I tell you what, we'll just get a hotel at the airport. And he said, there are no hotels at the airport. And I remember thinking, wait a second, this is the capital city, right? So uh, he said, just stay put, we'll come get you. So he, he comes over to pick me up. And while we were there, the place was a ghost town, but there was a Tim Hortons kiosk open. <laughs> always fresh, always open. And uh, so Linda and I, we not, I never had Tim Hortons before. So we went over there and had an eclair and coffee to celebrate we were still alive and uh, <laughs> wait for John to come. And while we were standing there ordering our, our food, uh, two custodial guys came up behind us. And one guy said to the other, did you hear that that one American airline flight actually came in? And the other guy said, stupid Americans. <laughs> now, wait a second. Why do you all laugh when I say that? <laughs> That's what I was thinking, too. I was thinking, who let those yahoos fly that plane? So uh, anyway, they, John picked us up, took us to our home in Blackburn Hammett, where we were staying. The next morning, we woke up. Everything's encrusted in ice, and trees were snapping. We thought we'd gone to Pluto. We didn't. And my wife, Linda, looks out the window, and she goes, I don't think I can do this, babe. And I said, I don't think I can either. Let's smile at the people, go through the weekend, go back to California, and pretend this never happened. But you know, by the end of that weekend... We had been so touched by the hospitality and warmth of the people that had greeted us and took care of us. And then we got to go to the Metropolitan Bible Church, and I got to preach there. And being in that church with those dear people, we flew home saying, if the Lord would let us come back to Canada, that would be a huge honor. 
and he did. So for the last 21 years, we've been part of Canada and uh, become dual citizens. I like to say we're North Americans now. And, uh, you know, and I am still amazed that we have the privilege of living in this beautiful land. It's a beautiful land. But though it's a beautiful land, I think you would probably concur with me, it's also a spiritually confused land. And in the last 20 years, I think that spiritual confusion has only intensified. There is great disagreement among Canadians when it comes to social, spiritual, moral, ethical issues. There is no consensus on which way our society should be headed. We don't know which way true north is anymore as a people. And it would be a challenging thing if the spiritual confusion in our land was only out in the wider culture. But the more troubling thing to me is often that spiritual confusion is found inside the Church of Christ. It's among us. We have religious leaders in Canada, pastors, theologians, authors, bloggers, all claiming to speak for God, but giving radically different messages on what God wants, whether it's uh, issues related to poverty or wealth or gender or marriage or heaven or hell. There is not a consensus even among the people of God about which way is true north. Now, that's a serious problem. Serious problem. Conflicting messages, spiritual confusion in God's people, in the wider cult. That's a serious problem, but it's not a new problem. That problem has actually gone on for years. In fact, 2,500 years ago, that was a big problem. Spiritual confusion, conflicting messages. I know that from reading the storyline of the ancient book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who lived millennia ago, lived at a time when the people of God were in great confusion. There were conflicting voices, all claiming to speak for God, and the people were confused. How do we know what's right? How do we know which way is true north? Well, God was not happy with the spiritual confusion among his people, so he commissioned a prophet, Jeremiah, to bring clarity to his people. And Jeremiah spoke fearlessly in confusing times. He spoke, though it cost him a great deal personally. And God used what Jeremiah said and what Jeremiah wrote to bring spiritual clarity to his people then and to still bring spiritual clarity to his people now. This week at Fair Havens, it's my joy to get to speak to you a number of times. So what I'm going to do is take our text from the book of Jeremiah. And to see, what did God say then that still helps us now? What did God say to Jeremiah that can help us in a spiritually confusing but beautiful land? How do we make sense of things? How do we know which way is true north? Today, I'm going to take you to a passage in Jeremiah that is foundational for everything else we'll see all week. It's a passage that tells us the mo- some incredible truth about the most root issue of all. And the most root issue, the most foundational issue of all is this. How do you hear from God? How do you know what God wants? How do you know among all the voices who is speaking for God? Today, we're going to go to a passage in Jeremiah where we find out how we can do that. And it will help you. It will help me in the spiritually confusing landscape in which we live. Today, I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 23. 
Jeremiah 23, and I want to uh, talk to you today about the supreme value of the Word of God. How the Lord has given us a sure and certain word that can help us in spiritually conflicted and confusing times. And my prayer is that today you will be reminded and riveted again to the truth that God has spoken and he still speaks and you can know what he says because he's given it in his word. That's where we're headed today. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at the passage together. Lord, it is such a privilege to be back here at Fair Havens, a place that your hand has used over the decades to bless many, many people and still does so today, including each of us. And now as we are here, we've sung our praises to you. And now we ask that you will speak your word to us. And may my word stay closely aligned to your word so that we know we have heard from you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, I should say. And our focus verses are going to be verses 28 and 29. But let me read verses 16 down through verse 32 to give you the feel of what's going on. I'm in Jeremiah 23, and I will be reading verses 16 down through about verse 30 and 31. Listen to it. It's a longer passage, but follow along. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, uh, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully, for what has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer, that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, and, and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy 
lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who will tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and by their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so that they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. In these words, you can see that God is not happy at this point, and he's not happy with the fact that there are people claiming to speak for him. They were speaking in his name, but they weren't speaking his message. Now, if you read the whole book of Jeremiah, you get the backstory of what's going on here. Jeremiah lived in some of the darkest days in Israel's history. Things were falling apart at the seams. The Babylonian power, the world power, the superpower of the day, the Babylonians had already come in. They had subjugated the land. They had captured Jerusalem, and they had deported some of the leaders. Uh, Ezekiel had been taken to Babylon. Daniel had been taken to Babylon. And now there was a remnant of people left in Jerusalem. The Babylonians had deposed the current king, a guy named Jeconiah, and they had imposed a puppet king, a guy named Zedekiah. And in the midst of all the turmoil and all the sorrow and all the confusion, there were people who got up saying, listen, listen, I have a word from God. I've dreamed something. I've got a message from God. And they were speaking forth their words, saying, These are, this is what God says. But Jeremiah's word from God says, wait a second, wait a second. They may be claiming to speak for God, but they're not. In fact, the Lord highlights that. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Slide down to verse 21. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Look at verse 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. So the Lord is saying, there's a bunch of people out there who are speaking in my name, but they're not speaking my message. Now, let me give you just one case study of how this played out. There's a fascinating little vignette in Jeremiah's book in chapters 27 and 28. Here's what happened in chapter 27 to 28. The Lord instructs Jeremiah to make a yoke, you know, like the oxen used to wear when they would pull the plow. So Jeremiah makes this yoke and the Lord says, go into the temple and put the yoke on your own shoulders and then give this message. The Lord says, we are to stay under the yoke of Babylon for years. So he's telling them, this is a time of discipline, of punishment for the people. We are to stay under the yoke of Babylon. God has sent them to deal with us. So Jeremiah does that. Well, in the temple, there was another guy named Hananiah. Hananiah was also one who said, I'm speaking for God. And Hananiah steps up. This must have been, this must have been quite a moment. Hananiah steps up and contradicts Jeremiah. Let me, if you look at chapter 28, verses 1 to 4, imagine the drama of this. So there's Jeremiah. Can you picture him? He's got this yoke on his shoulders, and he just said, we're supposed to stay under the yoke of Babylon. Then Hananiah gets up, verse 1 of 28, in that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon spoke to me in the house of the Lord and in the presence of the priests and all the people. So there's a crowd there. This is what he says, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So he's claiming, I've got a message from God, our God, the God of Israel. 
I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all of the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried into Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went, from, who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And then, to make his point more clear, look at verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. Can you picture this? So the guy says this. Listen, listen, Hananiah says, God's going to do good for us. In the next two years, it's all going to be good. Exile's coming back. Jeconiah's coming back. Then he goes over to Jeremiah, takes the yoke off, and snaps it. So you got two prophets giving radically different messages, and you got everybody there watching saying, like, who do we believe? How do you know who speaks for God? Brothers and sisters, that kind of situation is going on today, right? You got all kinds of people standing up saying, this is what God thinks. This is what God thinks. And sometimes the messages are radically different. So how do you know who speaks for God? Well, if you go back to our passage, chapter 23, and our focus verses, verses 28 and 29, you get the answer. Go back to chapter 23 and look at verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. You see what the Lord is saying? Like the people who's dreaming up stuff, they're going to keep dreaming their stuff up. But let the one who has my word, here's what they got to do, speak my word faithfully. Essentially, the message that Jeremiah is giving the people I boil it down this way. Jeremiah is giving them this message, and it still comes to us. The message is this. Listen to what God has made known, not what people have made up. Really, that's his message, right? Listen to what God has declared, not what people dream up. Listen to what God has made known, not what people dream up, not what people make up. You say, well, how do we know what God has made known? And I would say, Well, he not only had Jeremiah speak words, if you read the book of Jeremiah, he had Jeremiah write it down. Chapter 36, he writes it all down. In other words, God wanted to give his people a record of what was said. And so if you want to know what God says on any issue, you have to go to what God has made known. And what you need to do is look in what God has given us, not only spoken by prophets, but written down and collected in his word. So what that means, brothers and sisters, is this. Whenever you get advice, whenever you get spiritual advice, whenever you have somebody tell you what to think on an issue, whether it's how you should raise your children or what you should do with your finances or what you should think about marriage or how you handle times of injustice, whatever it is, whatever advice you're given by your pastor, by your best friend, by a best-selling author, what you have to do is say, thank you for that advice. Let me check it out with what God has made known in his word because I know this is from him. But what we all say, including me, 
You'd have to say, let me, let me make sure what you're saying lines up with his word. Because if what I say or what if anyone else says, if it doesn't line up with this book, you can say, well, that's not God's message. I often say to the people when I'm speaking, I say, I want you to have a Bible and follow along with me. Because what I'm about to say today doesn't matter at all unless what I say today follows closely with what the Bible says. And then what I say matters supremely because I'm not saying it. I'm just giving you what God has already said. Listen to what God has made known, not what people make up. That's what the Lord is saying. That's what he's telling us. He wants us to be those who are like the Bereans. Do you know the name of the Bereans? Acts chapter 17, Paul says he comes to this town called Berea. And Paul's a spiritual guy, right? He goes into the town and he declares the gospel. But the Bereans don't take him at his word. In fact, let me read for you Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says, Now these Jews in Berea were, a more, noble, were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word in all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul says, Good on those Bereans. When I gave them the word, they went to the word, the Bible, and said, let's see if what Paul says matches to what the scripture says. And Paul wasn't offended by that at all. In fact, he was impressed. And I think a good-hearted pastor, a good-hearted theologian, a good-hearted author would be happy if you say, well, I've heard what you said. Now I just got to kind of make sure it lines up with what God says. Listen to what God has made known, not what people have made up. Now, you may be hearing all of this, and you may have a couple questions for me. Here's one question that someone could have. Someone could say, well, I get the fact that you're saying that this book is from God, but aren't there a lot of holy books out there? Aren't there a lot of sacred writings? And how can we say, like, this book is from God? And How do you know the Bible is true? I mean, some people say that the New Testament misquotes Jesus, and other people say there are irreconcilable contradictions in this book. So how can you be so sure that this book is God's book? And I would say that's a fair question. That's a fair question. And the answer to that is probably longer than we can do this morning. But let me give you two statements that can help you towards an answer. If you're wrestling with, can I really trust this book? Two statements. Here's the first one. The Bible, especially the New Testament, gives us a reliable record of the life and teaching of Jesus. Okay? First thing, the Bible gives us a reliable record of the life and teaching of Jesus. We know that because we have Greek manuscripts that trace all the way back to within 100 years of when they were written. Within 100 years of life, we actually have fragments that you could see pictures of. You could go visit. And then we don't just have fragments, we have full manuscripts of the New Testament. We have thousands. And when you compare that to any other ancient book, it's embarrassing how many manuscripts the Bible has versus how few other ancient books have. That we would say, like uh, Gallic Wars or Julius Caesar, some of those, we just have a few manuscripts and they're like a thousand years after the date they were written. The Bible has manuscripts written within short period and we have ample. So all that to say is you can know that the Bible gives you a reliable record of the life and teaching of Jesus. Here's the second thing. If you're wrestling, can I trust the Bible? Second thing I'd say to you this, 
Jesus saw the Bible as the word of God. Jesus affirmed the Bible as the word of God. We know what he said. We have reliable records. And Jesus called the Bible. He called the Old Testament the word of God. Matthew 15, verse 6. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. It's sturdier than the universe. Jesus quoted the, the Old Testament, right? He, and he promised the New Testament. Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve, some of the controversial things. He spoke of Jonah. He spoke of David. He to, spoke of Solomon. So if you can trust Jesus, you can trust the Bible because he did. And that's where I'd say to you, you want to know what God says? Well, Jesus said, this is God's book. And that's a great starting point for saying, well, then I'm going to listen to this book. But there's another question that probably more of you have, or at least another concern, or perhaps a caveat that some of you would have. A lot of you here today would say, well, I do. I already believe that this is the word of God. I'm with you on that. But if I were to be honest, life gets busy, life gets full, and I don't really invest as much time in this book as probably I wish I did, or maybe others wish I did, or I could. And, and even when I do, sometimes it's kind of hard to understand. I read it, and I don't always make sure I'm, I'm getting it real clear. Sometimes it's hard for me to get into this book. So I believe it's the Word of God, but I don't functionally act as though I really believe that. So what I want to do in our time remaining is go back to our text and give you the three reasons Jeremiah did that can motivate you and motivate me to get into this book even deeper than we currently are. See, in Jeremiah 23, verses 28 and 29, Jeremiah gives you three good reasons why you and I need to be people of the book, why we need to go to it, why we need to dig into it, why we need to hear it, why we need to memorize it. Why we need to meditate on it. Let me give you three. They'll go quickly, but they're all important. Why should you listen to the word of God? What God has made known, not what people have made up. The first one comes in verse 28. Jeremiah says this, God's word is like grain. It's like wheat. It's like grain. It will nourish you. Why should you get into it? Because it will feed your soul. It will nourish you. God's word is like grain. It will nourish you. Look at verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. For what has straw in common with wheat? Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying the people who are just giving you their dreams, they're feeding you straw. Now, some of you are probably from farm backgrounds. If you want to have healthy livestock, you probably don't just feed them straw, right? No nutrients. You feed them grain. And the Lord is saying, when it comes to spiritual nutrition, if you want to be healthy, you got to have wheat and not straw. And what people say, that's kind of like straw. What God says, that's like wheat. It will nourish you. That's why, by the way, brothers and sisters, if some of you are pastors, or if you're a Sunday school teacher, or if you're a youth leader, or if you're an Awana leader, if you're a small group leader, what you need to do for the people you lead is teach them this book, get them in the Bible encourage them week in and week out. They're busy too. They get distracted like you do. But one of the things you can do for them is keep reminding them, we're coming back to this book. This is what God says. That's why I'm a president and a professor at a school called Heritage Bible College and Seminary. Can I tell you what we do with our students? We get them in this book. Unapologetically, we make them study harder than they've ever studied in their life. 
And we don't pull back at all because we say, we are studying the most important thing in the world. You're studying God's word. And when we're training young preachers, we tell those preachers, listen, listen, don't you dare go out there and just fill their heads with what you think. You got to learn to give them what God says. You have to learn to teach this book. Some years ago, my son Michael was a youth pastor up in Ottawa where we lived. And uh, he came to me one day and he was distraught. He said, Dad, I was just listening to the radio, Christian radio. And they had an interview with this guy who's a, like a youth pastor guru. Like he's the guy that trains all the youth pastors. And he was saying in the interview, he was saying to, he said, listen, if you're a youth pastor out there, you got to spend less time trying to come up with your Bible lessons because people, the kids are going to forget those. What they won't forget is that you took them to Starbucks. What they won't forget is that you went to their soccer game. So you got to invest your time in students and spending time. So my son, Michael, comes to me and he goes, Dad, am I wasting my time? He had been taking his high school students through the book of Romans. And he'd been putting in significant time to try to learn it and then bring it down to a high school level. He goes, am I wasting my time? That guy says they're going to forget what I say, but they'll remember if I go to their soccer game or take them to Starbucks. What do you think? So I said to him, I said, Michael, how many of your mother's dinners do you remember from your childhood days? He thought for a second, he goes, well, uh, like Thanksgiving, um, Christmas dinners, my birthday dinner when I got to pick the menu. And I go, how many others? And he goes, well, I don't, like, I don't remember a lot of the specific ones, Dad. I said, that's right. You've forgotten those. But if your mother had not been feeding you nourishing meal day after day, week after week, year after year, you would not have grown up to be physically healthy. And your students may forget some of the specifics of the things that you say. But if you feed them the word of God week after week, you're like, you're like a good mother. You're like a good cook. You're providing nourishment for their souls. Yes, go to their games. Yes, take them to Starbucks. Yes, love them. But don't pull back from feeding them. When Jesus called Peter to serve him, remember what he said, Peter, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed them. Feed them. So what, my first thing is, why should you and I get in God's word? It's what feeds us. It's what nourishes us. It's what grows us up healthy. There is no reason for anyone to be spiritually anemic. God has given us grain. He's given us wheat. Why should you and I listen to God's, why should we get into it? Why should we hear it taught? Why should we read it? Why should we study it? Why should we memorize it? It's like grain nourishes us. But there's a second thing. Verse 29 gives you a second reason. You should listen to God's word, listen to what God has made known, not what people made up. Not only is it like grain that nourishes us, get this, it's like fire that refines us. It's like fire that refines us. I see that in verse 29 of chapter 23. Look at it. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Isn't that interesting? God says, my word is like fire. A little earlier in the book, in chapter 6, verse 29, Jeremiah talked about a refining fire that you put in the, uh, the, the metal or the ore, and it burns out the impurities and leaves the good stuff, right? And the Lord is saying, that's what my word does. It refines people. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. All of us need refining. Like we are all a mixture of silver and dross. It's true for every single one of us here. We got impurities inside of us. 
A little bit later in the week, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 31, where he talks about the new covenant. And the blessing of the new covenant is this. When you come to know Jesus, you get a new heart, which means the truest and deepest part of you is inclined towards the Lord. You want to please him. He puts that in you. But as we learn in Romans chapter 7, you still got some leftovers from your old life, right? The Bible calls that the flesh or the sinful nature. So here we are. We're these people with new hearts, but we still got some old stuff. And what the word of God does is it comes like a refining fire and starts to burn away the the impurities in us, changes us. It leaves the good stuff. Linda and I got a picture of how this happens. A number of years ago, we were in Africa, and uh, we, we were in Tanzania, and we had been asked to do a marriage seminar for Tanzanian pastors and wives. And so there we were on the University of D- Dar es Salaam, and we were under, I remember we were outside, and there were actually monkeys swinging around, and they didn't notice them. They were like black squirrels to them. You know, it was like nothing, but we were, we were mesmerized, and we're trying to teach. And so we thought we have three hours to talk to these dear brothers and sisters in Christ from Tanzania from a variety of tribes. We have three hours to talk to them about marriage. So what do we do? Well, we didn't want to just import Western ideas about marriage and kind of say, here's what, you know, be like Canadians. We didn't want to do that. So we thought, you know what we'll do? We'll just go through all the significant passages that we can in three hours that the Bible has about marriage. So we started in Genesis 1. We were in Proverbs, Song of Songs. We went to what Jesus said in Matthew 19. We were in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. We went through some of those passages. Something happened when we got to Genesis chapter 2. We got to Genesis 2.24, which is the verse that says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave or be united to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. And so we started having a conversation how is when you get married in God's eyes, that union is supposed to be the closest union, humanly speaking. There's a leaving of father and mother. There's a change, and there's now a new unit, and that's the most important unit. So we were talking about this, and suddenly one of the African believers said, well, in our culture, we do it a little differently. In our culture, in our tribe, when a woman marries a man, she, the wife, becomes the servant of the man's siblings. So, ladies, how would you like to sign up for that, right? <laughs> so she becomes the servant of the husband's siblings. And when he said this, everyone just nodded their heads. I mean, that's what you do. That's the way my parents did it. That's the way grandma and grandpa did it. That's what happens. So he said, he's saying this, and suddenly one of the guys stands up, a young African pastor named Sammy. And Sammy says, let me tell you about what happened to me. The first time I brought my new bride home to my tribe, We stayed overnight in the house, and the next morning we got up, and there on the front porch was all the laundry that my sisters had brought so that my wife could do all the laundry. And everyone just nodded. It's like, well, yep, that's what you do. And then Sammy said this, so I picked up all the laundry, and I went to my sister, and I said, if you do this again, I will burn your laundry. And every, they, they had the same, the, the rest of the pastors there and their wives all had the same thing. Like, what? You said what? And then he said this, because the Bible says a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall be one. And then he said to his sisters, we're happy to help you if you need help. But she is my wife, not your servant. And if you want help from her, you need to come and talk to me as well. You see what was happening there? 
the word of God was refining a cultural practice, a cultural norm that was not in sync. And these pastors and wives were thinking, we need to hear that. It was interesting, after that session, one of the African pastors came up to me and he said, Pastor, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. He said, is it true that in your country of Canada, there are many Christians that get divorced? And I said, well, I've been a pastor for a while, and tragically, that does happen. And then he said, but doesn't the Bible say that what God has joined together, let no one pull apart? See, it's not just Tanzanians that need the refining work of God's word. It's Canadians. It's all of us. It's you. It's me. Why do you and I need to be in the word of God? Because we all need refining. We all need our presuppositions challenged. We all need some of our family practices challenged. We need God to refine us. So that's why you should be. It's like grain that nourishes you. It's like a fire that refines you. But let me give you the third one. Because this one's maybe the hardest of all. Look at verse 29. Third reason you and I need to listen to what God has made known and not what people make up is because God's word is like a hammer. It will break you. The word's like a hammer. Martin Luther said that one time. God's word comes like a hammer. And it breaks us. Look at verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? He's saying sometimes the word of God, the same word of God that nourishes us, can be the same word of God that at times breaks us. When our hearts get stony and hard, The word of God can come and smash that and break us open. See, the false prophets, they weren't given anything that was like a hammer. Back in verse 17, look what it says. The false prophets, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. They're tickling ears, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But the Lord says, no, no, no. Sometimes actually my word comes like a hammer. And it shatters you. It breaks you so that it will build you back up right. If if you've known the Lord and read his word, you know what I'm talking about. There are times. When I read this book. And it comes like a hammer. breaks up my stony heart, points me back. And I need that. And you do too. Why should you and I be people of this book? Because there's nothing else like it. This is the word of God. Listen to what God has made known, not what people make up. It's like grain that will nourish your soul. It will feed you. It's like fire that will refine you. And when you need it, it's like a hammer that will break you. So what do you do with all of this? Well, let me close by talking to two groups of you. Many of you here have already come to know the Lord. You love him. You love his word. And what I want to say to you is this. Oh, don't you need the nourishment? Don't you need the refining? Don't you need even the breaking of the word of God? And you say, yes, I need that. Then I say to you, 
then you cannot afford to not be in this book. You cannot afford to not hear this book taught. You cannot afford to, if you're in a position of teaching, to say to the people you teach, doesn't really matter what I think. I can dream up a lot of things, but it matters supremely what God says. So let's look at his word together. See if our churches are going to get away from all the confusion. The only hope we have is by the spirit of God. The word of God comes to guide us and show us true north. So if you're a person who loves the Lord, loves his word, then be a person of the book. That's what I would say to you. Second group, there may be some of you here today that still are kind of on the outside looking in. You're not sure what you think about all of this. Spiritually, you would say, well, I'm not sure I'm really on the inside yet. I'm still kind of looking at it. What I would say to you is this. This book will point you to God like nothing else. This book will show you to Christ. This book will show you to salvation. This book will show you to eternal life. In the 18th century, there was a young man named John Wesley. He was really spiritually fired up. He wanted to do it right. He was a moralistic guy. He tried to live right. He tried to do right. He even came, he was in England, even came to America to be a missionary. And he thought somehow, if I can just do this well enough, then God's going to be happy with me. But he was never at peace. He knew something was still wrong. He went back to England, and one night in a little church service, he heard somebody read the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Sounds like dry reading, right? But in that, Luther is talking about how the word of God, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, had opened up the heavens to him and shown him that righteousness came, being right with God came through faith in Christ, not through all the good deeds and all the hard work you can do. It changed Luther's life. And that night, John Wesley, as he heard that, said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I was born again. You see, he came to believe what the Bible says, that the only way you have peace with God is through Christ Jesus, the one who died for your sins, the one who rose from the grave, and the one who says to you, when you put your faith in me, when you link your life to mine by faith, I give you myself, and I give you life, and I give you eternal life. Listen to what John Wesley would later write about the word of God. He became so passionate about it, he wrote this. I am a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf, till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. See what Wesley's saying? God has written it down so you don't have to be spiritually confused from here on out. You can find your way to God because God has found his way to you and he's written it down and he points you to Christ. So my heart is all of us leave here today saying, listen, there's going to still be a lot of confusion out there. You're still going to hear a lot of pundits and podcasts and you're going to see a lot of bloggers and pastors and everybody saying here, this is what we should do. If you love your soul and if you love this land, 
then you're going to be a person that says, amidst the confusion, I know the one place I can look for clarity. Listen to what God has made known, not what people have made up. It's grain. It's fire. It's a hammer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us in your word what we need for life and godliness. Lord, how hopeless it would be if we were left to our own intuition, our own family patterns, our own cultural traditions. But you have given us a sure and certain word. Lord, we confess to you, sometimes it is hard for us to understand, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us. But we also pray you would help us to be people of this book that we would come to know you through your word, by your spirit, that we would come to know and love and trust Jesus. And then I pray that our families and our churches would be places where your word is taught and lifted up, believed and obeyed. We say all of this to you because you are so good. You are a good, good father, and you've given us a good, good book. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information on Heritage College and Seminary, visit the school's website at discoverheritage.ca. To stay connected with the Reeds, visit their website at rickandlindareed.com.